Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber dot com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. As usual, lots to talk about. Um, there is an evolving growth story in Europe that I think is worth talking about, Chris, because we have had a constant refrain for some time now about what the European Central Bank is doing, and it is clear that there is a deteriorating growth story coming out of Europe at the moment. And the obvious fear here is that the European Central Bank will or perhaps has already done too much in terms of interest rate tightening. There is quite a bit going on on the commodity price front at the moment with natural gas and oil. And of course, that does feed in directly to the European growth story. Yesterday, the Central Statistics Office published data called Measuring Ireland's Progress. There's a few pieces of data that jump out of that that I'd like to talk about. Uh, We've had manufacturing output data out of Ireland, and there's also a story about Ireland and the BBC. Um, We have, I think, a pretty significant story happening in Italy at the moment with the Italian banks and the levy that has been suddenly proposed by the Italian government on the banking system. And we, we have discussed in an Irish context uh, what the banks have been doing here in terms of profit growth and in terms of passing on ECB rate increases to the depositor. Uh, we've been pretty critical of what the Irish banks are doing. And um, we were making the point that it certainly doesn't take a genius to generate significant profits in the Irish banking system at the moment. Well, the Italian government obviously feels the same way about how the Italian banks are behaving. And China, um, we've spoken about China a lot over the last three or four weeks. And I suppose as the world's second largest economy, the world's second largest uh, country in terms of population, what what's going on there is of enormous relevance to the rest of the world. And that story of economic de- decline, deflation, 
continues to build. And if we get time, I think Niger is worth revisiting again. Uh, we spoke about it in our last podcast. And um, with every piece of news I hear out of that country, and indeed you hear as well, uh, we become more and more concerned about what it actually all means. But starting on the European growth story, um, and that there's numerous pieces of data uh, we could throw out in this podcast. Um, I don't think we will, but there's a few pieces of data in the last couple of days that I think are worthy of comment and, and are sort of indicative of what's going on at a general level in Europe. Ger- German industrial production down 1.5% in June on a monthly basis. Construction activity down by 2.8%. Manufacturing activity down by 1.3%. And within that, car production is down by 3.5%. Um, for the Eurozone as a whole, retail sales fell by 0.3% in June. So it is clear that there is certainly a building story of economic slowdown in the Euro area. And yet the European Central Bank has delivered a cumulative rate increases of four and a quarter percent at this juncture with the promise possibly of more to come. Are you concerned that the whole European story is deteriorating in a significant way? Jim, I think the global situation is deteriorating. I don't think it's falling off a cliff, but uh, as I always say, everything is connected to everything else. The EU economy that seems to be in a particular bind is the big one, Germany. And that's not unconnected with what's going on in China. You mentioned China in your intro, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But China is very weak. And one of the reasons why China is very weak is that its external trade situation is sinking. And that's both on the exports and the import side. The country in Europe, arguably the biggest economy in Europe that's most exposed to global trade or one of them at least, is Germany. And that's why Germany's in recession. Uh, I think that there are slowing labour markets everywhere, not just in the euro area. Uh, I've noticed something of a little bit of a slowdown in the US labour market. It's not precipitate, it's not falling off a cliff, but I do think the days of the ultra-tight labour market in the United States might be behind us gradually. The UK labour market, similarly, is showing signs of loosening quite a lot, actually. Uh, The the unemployment rate is not shooting up, but vacancies are coming down. And that story about employers finding it next to impossible to get people to go back to work is abating quite rapidly, actually. Employers are finding it easier to get people. So again, this is not a story about the labour market suddenly falling off a cliff but it is about that tightness uh, disappearing, actually. And all of this is consistent with economic slowdown globally. Different countries are experiencing this slowdown in different ways and at different rates. But I do think that on the economic side, the effects of all of these interest rate rises are finally starting to come home. And of course, one of the areas that you see this is in the housing market. I mentioned last time in the UK, we had a piece of data that said that house prices were falling. That's been reinforced with some more data since we had that last podcast. House prices are definitely falling here in the UK. There's no doubt about it. Activity is also falling as well as it often does. People are transacting less in the property market. And I know you wrote something for our Substack uh, site today about the Irish housing market, which again, uh, comments 
a bit like my ones on the labour market, it's not falling off a cliff, but it does seem that finally interest rates are starting to bite. Now, the whole thing about that phrase, interest rates starting to bite, that's worried me all along, is that it's going to be very non-linear, that all of a sudden, after interest rates not seeming to affect anything in particular and everything just carrying on as per normal, we suddenly get the effects coming all at once, a bit like a number seven bus. And that's worrying me is that that's what's starting to happen now. I think stock markets are showing signs of weakness. Again, nothing precipitate, but the fact that stock markets are now starting to struggle as we've come into August, they've been struggling since the start of the month. There've been various catalysts for that, but I, I do see that as another indicator of global economic weakness. The thing that runs counter to that, Jim, is the thing you mentioned in your intro, which is commodity prices. There are several things of note going on there that suggests that economic weakness is more apparent than real. As always, this is all a very confusing data picture. But we've got natural gas prices in Europe up 30% today. Now, that's an extraordinary move, even by the weird standards of uh, those commodity markets. Um, I think that's an awful lot to do with speculative activity, some specific news stories out of Australia. Their production of liquid natural, natural gas is under threat for various reasons. There are various other stories around maintenance and other outages of gas fields around the world. This is a global story, not just a European one. The, the price that's worrying me, and I think will be worrying central banks, and will encourage the ECB to keep going, is the oil price, because that's going up every day at the moment. And oil prices are actually, as we speak, at a nine-month high. That will be concerning. Now, normally, oil prices in the world economy are loosely correlated. I stress loosely. It could well be that we have economic weakness and oil price strength. It doesn't always happen in that way, but that's one thing that tempers my enthusiasm for saying that the world economy is in trouble. But my overall take from that is that we are slowing down. We are potentially slowing down quite rapidly now. And if that is the case, I think that my warnings, which I've been issuing for some time, that the ECB is going to overdo it, make yet another policy mistake, will be proven right. They're not, they're not there yet, but I still think that the ECB, if it goes again by the 50 basis points that I think we both think that they might well do, uh, they will certainly be over-egging the pudding, Jim. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's difficult to disagree with that, Chris. Um, I agree with your assessment about the slowdown we're seeing coming through. And when you see natural gas futures in Europe at an eight-week high, at a five-week five-week high in the United Kingdom, uh, Brent crude over eighty-seven dollars a barrel. Um, okay, at one level, these things will feed into inflation, but I think we've reached the stage in the cycle now where these commodity price increases actually do more damage to economic growth than create upside potential for inflation, if, if you get my meaning. Um, maybe it's both, Jim. It may, maybe it's a combination of both, absolutely, Chris. So uh, we wait and see how central banks behave from here. Chris, the BBC uh, ran a piece yesterday about Ireland and um I read read it on their website. You actually saw it on their news. I think it led on their six o'clock news yesterday evening about Ireland, what's happening to the Irish economy, and focusing in very strongly on 
the budget surpluses we're running at the moment with the suggestion being that Ireland is just a tax haven. That's where it's all coming from. I'd like to get your perspective on that in a second. But before we do that, just to throw out some statistics yesterday from the Central Statistics Office measuring Ireland's progress. Um, Ireland has the third fastest growing population in the European Union over the last 10 years, population growth of 10.3% compared to an EU average of 1.4%. So when you get that sort of rapid population growth, clearly, unless you plan for it, you're going to have problems with the provision of health and housing and so on, which is exactly what we're seeing. Um, Male life expectancy, the highest in the European Union at 80.8. And just a bit of historical context there, that's up 22.2 years since 1926. But at male life expectancy at 80.8, and and we've often discussed here that one of the strongest indicators of quality of life and so on in the country actually is life expectancy and Ireland is doing pretty well on that front and female expectancy is at 84.4 years. Um, We are the most expensive country in the European Union for goods and services, 43.8% higher than the European average. We have the second highest level of greenhouse gas emissions per capita in the European Union. Um, And, you know, I think that definitely talks to discussions we've had about our dependence on imported fossil fuels, about the failure to really push the alternative energy agenda, particularly offshore wind as aggressively as we should. And that's certainly showing up in our greenhouse gas emissions. And also, of course, there's a very strong argument here for a significant increase in investment in public transport. Um, the I, I think the other thing that's interesting is that um, we had 39.9 STEM graduates per thousand of population in the age group between 20 and 29. That is the highest in the European Union. So we're still continuing to produce um, a lot of graduates in the science and technology areas, which is really, really important, particularly important given the structure of the Irish economy. But listen, on balance, a lot of very positive structural stuff about what's happening in Ireland. Um, But not surprisingly, you get stories like we saw on the BBC about the tax behaviour of the country. Yeah, in fairness to the BBC, that it wasn't all about tax, although there was a lot about uh, Ireland's budget surplus. And in a way, it was contrasting the experience of Ireland and the UK, where in here in Britain, we, we haven't got any money, or at least the Chancellor of the Exchequer doesn't, because there hasn't been any growth for a long time. Yet another economic forecast out today, from this time from the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, a house I used to work for 100 years ago. They're talking about the next five years being really, really difficult and next to no growth for at least five years. That's just another forecast, but it happens to be one that I would have an awful lot of sympathy for. Uh, The piece on the BBC was as much about Ireland's success, and I think they, they handled it reasonably well. They didn't Uh, go off on one about Ireland being a tax haven. They spoke to Alan Barrett of the Economic and Social Research Institute, a kind of a sister, quasi-sister organisation of the UK's National Institute. 
in which he talked about the Silicon Docks. They actually uh, shot the piece, filmed the piece down in the docks there, where he just simply waved his hands around and pointed to the substance behind the corporation tax revenues. The companies are in Ireland. They do employ an awful lot of people. They do an awful lot of stuff. And it's not just about tax avoidance. And these days, I don't think it's even mostly about tax avoidance. It's about real substantive economic activity. So I think they did a good job there. But they ran through the figures about which we're all familiar. They put them in sterling rather than euros about the projected budget surpluses for the next few years and asked people what on earth should be done with these uh, great surpluses. And they sat down with a young person in a cafe who, of course, and rightly talked about the housing problem. And this particular young woman said that in every social gathering that she's at, it's always the cost of rent, it's always the unavailability of housing that dominates the conversation. And you and I have talked about that a lot and what we might or might not do about that. They also spoke to somebody, I think she was standing on Gardner Street. I couldn't quite tell from the, from the piece uh, of filming that I, I was looking at. Um, and this was a, a community activist who talked about inequality. And she talked about the, the growing gap between rich and poor in Ireland. And of course, this is something that she may well be right. Uh, the people that she works with may well be experiencing exactly that. And she, she knows what she's talking about. And I don't want to uh, diss what she was saying, but the, a proper piece of journalism would have gone from that Vox Pop interview and said something like, this particular community activist is undoubtedly seeing what she's seeing and describing it accurately. But the aggregate data for Ireland as a whole does not support her conclusion, or at least that there is no aggregate data to support that. All of the data that we have for aggregate inequality in Ireland is that it at worst is stabilizing and at best actually might be reducing. So I think that as always with economic and financial journalism, this particular piece did a poor job as so many diff different pieces of journalism that I see actually do because it involves getting your hands dirty with data. And people's eyes glaze over when you start talking numbers, people's eyes start talking about, when you start talking about national accounts and all the things that you and I talk about, it's sometimes tricky to get an audience's engagement, so I know why they do it. But it was striking that the BBC ran this. It wasn't the actual top of the show news item, although it was a very major news item. Another Irish story was their lead item on the six o'clock news last night, and of course that was Sinead O'Connor's funeral. Um, so Ireland figured heavily on the BBC, and Ireland's success, both its overall economic success in general and its budgetary success, the amount of money that it, you guys have available to you to use in various ways, potentially, um, was also is, is attracting a lot of international attention now. And on that, one thing I'd like to draw, you may not have seen this, I'd draw listeners' attention to it at least, is that there was a very interesting newsletter from a, a website, a news uh, agency platform thing called The Currency. You've probably heard of it, Jim. And it's normally subscription, but this one is is free to air. You can go and read it yourself. And it's a very interesting piece about how, what Ireland might look like if we did infrastructure properly. And it talked about Ireland being the best place to live in, in the world, if, not, um, if only we could do infrastructure properly. And it dissected the ways in which different countries do infrastructure, using the example in particular of the way in which the Italian city Milan does it. And there's a lot of detail, a lot of numbers. 
And it's extraordinary the differences. This piece highlighted something that we all know, that just digging a mile of uh, underground railway, a metro-type tunnel, how much it costs, uh, the, the varia- variability in, in costs around the world is extraordinary. Multiples difference. And the way in which the English-speaking world, Ireland included, seems to be only be able to do infrastructure inefficiently and at massively high cost. And the Milan experience of being able to do these sorts of things is very instructive. And there were, there's lots in it that I would urge people to have a look at. It's possible to do this, these things properly, but it requires radical policy change. And I think the conclusion is right. If only Ireland could get decent infrastructure, it already is one of the best places in the world to live, but it could be the best place. So that's a pretty stark conclusion, isn't it, Jim? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Chris, the Italian government on Monday night threw a spanner in the works when it announced that it was going to tax net interest income of the banks at 40%, okay, or the, the, the profits that were being earned. Um, and there was a huge market reaction. Uh, stock Bank stock price in Italy particularly fell anything between 5 and 10%, depending on the Italian bank you look at. Um, and that yesterday then forced the Italian government to back off. And they said that the there would be a threshold or at least the net interest income would be capped at 0.1% of total assets outstanding. So basically, um, to explain what is now in situ, or well, Parliament still has to pass it, but what the Italian government is proposing is that the threshold for imposing the 40% levy will be based on the difference between net interest income in 2021 and the figure for 2022 and 2023, whichever is greater. And if the net interest income in the selected year, be it 2022 or 2023, is between 5 and 10% above the 2021 level, there will be a 40% tax applied, a windfall tax or levy. Um, and as I say, that will be capped at 0.1% of bank assets. Initially, uh, on the initial proposal on Monday night, it was expected that, well, analysts were suggesting this would raise around $4.5 billion for the Italian government. But with the slight revision, they're now talking about income of around $1.8 billion for the Italian government. But I suppose what this highlights is a growing sense of dissatisfaction around Europe particularly, about how the banks are passing on the ECB's interest rate increases 
Um, and, you know, the, the biggest criticism is that very little is being passed on to depositors. And we spoke about this in the context of the Irish banks over a couple of podcasts recently. But this is a thing now in Italy, and it seems to be an issue in many EU countries. Spain is another one where there's a lot of debate going on at the moment about the behavior of the banks. And I also think the same sort of attention, well, obviously, I don't think it is being paid to the energy companies and the profits they are making on the back of the escalation in commodity prices we've seen over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, windfall taxes have been introduced in some countries are being spoken about in a lot of countries. So certainly there is a sense that as governments in countries like Italy are struggling in the face of a cost of living crisis, rising interest rates, um, they're lashing out a little bit at those sectors they deem to be actually profiting from what has happened over the last couple of years in terms of interest rates and energy prices. So um, it's an amazing story. Is it something we could see introduced in Ireland, do you think? That obviously will be up to politicians, and they've shown an appetite in recent years for windfall taxes on banks, not least because for a while there they owned the banks, and uh, they had lots to say not just about uh, taxes on bank profits, but also bankers' salaries. And if the banks are misbehaving again, frankly, Jim, they, they deserve everything that a politician might be tempted to do. I've no idea whether Ireland will do or not. But as you were talking about banks, uh, a couple of things struck me there. First of all, the thought that of an ordinary punter, a non-economist, non-financial type, hearing all these bank-type stories would be tempted to say, oh, God, here we go again, banks misbehaving. Didn't they do it all before so many blooming times? And the answer, of course, is yes. And then when you talk about energy companies and the windfall profits they've been getting, and I look at the profits of badly behaved utility companies, water companies and other utilities here in the UK. Jim, as a, an economist, as an extreme right-wing economist, which is, I think, how you describe yourself, isn't it? Um, Good God. Relative to you, I am, Chris, yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, we, we all know that the, the, the textbooks tell us that the best uh, or the least worst form of capitalism is one of perfect competition. And I think that we would both agree that that textbook model is the best thing that we've ever seen in terms of our ability to, to organize our economies. Uh, would you agree or disagree with the proposition that the last thing we have at the moment in practice is that textbook model? That every market that you look at, the banks, the utility companies, the energy companies, it's all bloody rigged, isn't it? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Uh, there is and a. So, what, what, what's the answer? Well, the answer, as loath as I would be to suggest it, but the answer is exactly what's happening now. Um, you do need government intervention to address the lack of competition and market failure, although uh, the policies of governments have actually contributed to that lack of competition. Uh, but now that we have it, and it's, it's very difficult to introduce competition into a banking sector. I mean, I've, I wrote in our Substack account last week about... Uh, my view that we should be setting up a state-owned bank targeting the SME sector specifically. Um, and that got a, a mixed reaction, to, to be honest, both from listeners and, and, and comments we got in and so on. Uh, but, you know, you, you do need government intervention to prevent these market failures. 
from delivering a suboptimal outcome for um, consumers and particularly small businesses. And on that thing about the banks, I think the, the risk that they're running by going for these profits again at the expense of their customers again in a way that perhaps can be described as egregious is that they will accelerate the transition to something called a central bank digital currency because this is would be my preferred solution to this, which is that it's about time that what the internet did to travel agents, it does to banks. And that the central bank, everybody gets an, a bank account still, but this time with the central bank and it issues currency, a digital one accordingly, because we all use digital money these days. It can still issue paper money if it wants to. But we all have an, a technology exists now that we can all put our de- bank deposits with the central bank and, and the computer power exists for them to be able to handle this relatively easily. The riposte to this and it's actually a riposte that I heard given to me when I put this very point to an ex-central bank governor, Mark Carney of the Bank of England, a couple of years ago now, in which I said that this this is the way forward, isn't it? He then said, no, it isn't, because who would do the lending? And I think the answer to Mark Carney is that the lending is done by an AI machine. Uh, essentially, banks these days do lending on the basis of their own algorithms, their own checklists, uh, they don't don't do lending in the old-fashioned ways of getting to know your customer. You, you have a, a set of criteria that if you meet, you get the loan, and if you don't meet the criteria, you don't get the loan. This could all be handled by an artificial intelligence system, so without any human intervention whatsoever, or at least minimal intervention. So I think the banks are hastening the day when they're going to get calls from the likes of people like me that they need to be, in the jargon, disintermediated in the way that Uh, Lots of things have been disintermediated by technology, and it's the bank's turn. I think it's coming. And if they continue going down this road, they're shooting themselves in both feet in terms of their long-term future. Uh, But more generally, yes, I do think that there are just too many things that are rigged right now against the ordinary punter. And I think that explains a lot of the political backlash that we're seeing around the world, the rise of populism and all that. But let's not get into that today. But uh, I, I do think that we, the banks do have, at the very least, a very bad PR problem. They, they certainly have, yeah. And it's, it's just not unique to Ireland. Uh, but I just thought from Georgie Maloney, that was a pretty um, interesting move on Monday night. Uh, Chris, finishing up on China. OK, I know you want to talk about Niger. I think we leave that to the next podcast because uh, we would only rush it. But I, I think it's it's worth just sort of reiterating the latest piece of news we've got out of China or summarizing it. Uh, consumer prices declined by 0.3% year on year in July. And um, that's the first time since early 21 that this has happened. The producer price index was down by 4.4%. So the the Chinese economy is basically characterized by growing deflationary pressures, a property sector that's experiencing serious problems, consumer spending that has weakened significantly. And you mentioned earlier the weakness in external trade. And the trade data of China is quite extraordinary at the moment. Um, in, in July, exports fell 14.5% year on year and imports fell 12.4% year on year. You know, this is a dramatic decline in the external trade performance of the Chinese economy. So I I mentioned in the introduction, you know, this is important because it is the world's second largest economy. 
and what happens to China has significant implications for the rest of the world. But it's it's a country in serious trouble economically at the moment. And of course, um, this wouldn't be as dangerous as it would be in sort of normal, if there is such a thing at this juncture, normal democracies. But in a centrally planned economy, it is somewhat easier to manage these sorts of challenges. But challenges they are nevertheless. And serious pressure now on the Communist Party in China to actually stimulate the Chinese economy as quickly as possible. And a couple of weeks back, we saw the announcement of some measures and immediately global commodity prices started to rise. So everything is connected, as as, as you always say, Chris. But, you know, the slowdown in the Chinese economy impacts global growth. And in turn, the response from the Chinese authorities has the potential to significantly lift commodity prices, causing further global growth problems. So it's it's all intertwined and intertangled at the moment. And it certainly is a tangle, Jim. As you say, let's leave Niger till next time, because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, quite worrying stuff going on there. So, But let's park that until the end of the week, the weekend perhaps, and um, I'll speak to you then. Excellent, Chris. Listen, thanks a million. Good to talk. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 